Welcome to the Rockstack Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a screen with my colleagues Martin Collier. Oh, hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Mark Pringle, he of the fruity cackle, is <laughs> sunning his live physique on the beaches of Crete. So Martin is graciously stepping in to co-host this episode, whose very special guest is none other than the excellent Deborah Frost. Hi, Deborah. Hello, and I'll do my best at fruity cackling. What kind of fruit would you prefer? <laughs> I mean, with, with all due respect, you're never going to be able to cackle like Mark Pringle. I probably... It's not, it's not even worth trying. I, I won't even try. I, I won't. I'll, I'm out of that competition. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> So Deborah joins us all the way from her native New York, where for many years she has performed and written about music for Circus, Rolling Stone, Village Voice, far too many other publications to mention. Deborah, we're going to talk to you about heavy metal in general and the Blue Oyster Cult in particular. And we'll also touch on Grace Jones and the British band Foles. But first off, would you tell us briefly about Flaming Youth, the all-girl band you drummed in in the early 1970s? Flaming Youth was a band with, it was a, a really first hard rock all-girl band in New York. And I had met these people before. I mean, it, it's Denise Mercedes who went on, on to form the Stimulators. She was the girlfriend of Peter Orlovsky, who was Allen Ginsberg's boyfriend or wrote, but and <laughs> they lived together. And we actually, in 2019, something I never thought would happen. I mean, she was... She was on the Rolling Thunder review. She's in that Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah. Just so, and people would say, didn't we see you there? And I said, you know, that's Alan's apartment. I live there. It's, I thought, yes, I was there. It was like watching old home movies, but I don't remember being there at that certain time. We'd already broken up. But anyway, Denise was the guitar player. And in those days, first, there weren't that many girls playing, but that's also in London, people used to meet through the adverts and I don't know if it was Melody Maker or, you know, NME, that's how that's how you met. This was before the, the internet, you know, you'd put out, you know, looking for guitarists, looking for drummer and put an ad in the village voice. I mean, that's how Kismet, thanks. Yes. Kismet. Oh, isn't that clever? No, but I, but that's what you, you did. It was a small thing in Boston. People met, you know, that was just the way, you know, you'd put things up, flyers up in the music store or wherever, but what you, you have these underground sort of newspapers and the ad was, was very cheap. You could afford to do that. And you'd say, you know, looking for people. So I had actually met these people even before they'd had some other version of the, like a couple of years before, and they had a different, they wanted a singer then. And I think that didn't, they were kind of lightweight. It was a totally different band. But then I actually was working for a movie company, this crazy movie company. Donald Rugoff was at Cinema 5. He invented the multiplex, Cinema 1 and 2. This is the only job in an office that I've ever had, except it was mostly in a limousine or riding around with movie star like Malcolm McDowell or 
or directors. You know, it, it, all these funny, funny things happened. How old were you at this time? I was just 19. I had just dropped out of college because I, as I had written, my freshman year in in school, my father was killed a couple of weeks and it happened there. I mean, and I was at Harvard. It was, it was horrible. It was just, I was not capable of, of studying anymore. You know, it was just, and they didn't care. You know, they didn't know about trauma. This is okay. You've had a terrible tragedy. Get back on the horse and, you know, mm-hmm. get back in there and keep going for it. And it, it was not possible. So I ended up working for this, this crazy movie company. But all I really wanted to do was play the drum, especially after my father was killed. You know, I had always been involved in the arts. I had I had been involved in off-off-Broadway, which was actually a kind of interesting time because all these people like Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, everybody was involved. It wasn't just music. It was a whole, the theater, people doing their plays. You'd be, you know, at Max, it, it was the art world and the theater world, you know, everybody living in the village. You'd, you'd kind of crisscross with them if you just got up and out and around. I look back and go, wow, this is pretty, this is amazing. So, but anyway, after my father died, all I could do was rerun what had happened in my head and think, gee, if there was only something I could do, you know, I thought I could have prevented this. I could have done. But I went to visit my cousins or something for my 18th birthday, which had this incident had happened 18 days before. And my cousin had a set of drums in the basement. And I sat down and I started banging and I said, this is the only time I don't feel bad. So I wanted to do this. I got up, you know, my uncle didn't want me to worry about money. So he gave me, you know, $500. I meant immediately to the drum shop. That's what, you know, instead of, you know, food, anything, that's what I did. So I had these drums and I just thought things would be so much, I just want to do what I want to do. You know, I did, I produced tons of commercials, tons of trailers, all kinds of things for various movies. But I, I just thought, wow, things will be so much better if I can do my own thing. And I thought, play the draw, you know, in the band. And in fact, when I went to audition, for Flaming Youth. And Don had said, oh, that's a dangerous place. Probably the same block I was born on, you know, in the 30s, but it was like the music building. That's a dangerous, take the limo. So I showed up for my audition (laughs) and then these these girls, take the, you know, take the limo was, and, and I had, after, you know, the audition and I came in, I just banged, it was like Keith Moon was basically my my this my style of drumming i mean it was a very physical <laughs> maximalist real, i didn't study my rudiments as effectively as i should you know it was just banging being no brush style no no it was yeah. not I, I didn't even count people would say how can you count and i said well if you're the drummer they have to follow you you know so uh you know at some point but anyway, I went to their audition and we came out after, you know, you're it, you're it. And then I came downstairs and I said, they said, you know, we're going back. They all lived in Allen Ginsberg's apartment on, on 10th Street. And I said, well, I'll 
I can give everybody lift. You know, I have the car, the, oh, you have a car, you know, in this giant thing, the limo, and takes us to 10th Street and Avenue D in, you know, 1970. And, and they thought this always came along. But but they did ask me to be in the band before they saw, before they got the ride in the car. Before they saw the limo. Before they saw the limo. I mean, it was so bizarre. It was downhill from there, there. And right? I said, the limo doesn't really come all the time but um you know it, it was the limo never came again actually and that in that band it really it didn't we had to go in a van and it's a whole anyway they were very gung-ho elodie the person who was the lead singer this woman elodie she was way ahead of her she was half french elodie lawton she was the daughter of this jazz pianist, Errol Parker, and she'd come to America to find her father. But she was going out with Johnny Thunders. I mean, the dolls had made their impressions. So she was like, she was wilder than any of the dolls. And they had these outfits, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, things that they would make themselves. And she was just totally wild. And I was the drummer until when we went to first play at this place, Coventry, where Kiss used to play. Everybody, you know, everybody played there. That was in, in Queens, right? It was in Queens. There was nowhere yes. else. It was this bizarre place with two state. Who was this mob joint? I, I think. love that it was called the Coventry. I mean, that's yes. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. For us, yes. they just like Being sent to Coventry. Co- <laughs> I, I know. Yes, well, yes we, exactly. We thought it was, you know, Coventry. You know, it was like some. You thought it was, it was exotic. Just, you're yes, not, you it, haven't been to well, Coventry. Well, so it was it was exotic. It was like under the Queen's Boulevard. Just, to me, it was yes. a foreign country. But we went there, and these are also the days you didn't have monitor. So you just, you know, you just play, and like the first time we get on stage, and Elodie jumps off the stage into the audience, and she's. This is before you know stage dive or anything, and these guys are all right. But I didn't know where. Couldn't figure out where are we in the song because I couldn't hear. You know, I couldn't. But I also couldn't see, and I couldn't. You know, you couldn't hear. You couldn't see. You and I got really mad. You know, we had. You know, just very primitive. Look, you you see these pictures of, you know, Jimi Hendrix or Led Zeppelin without monitors, you know, in the in the early days you heard out of whatever primitive whatever the columns were in the in the PA. So anyway, I, but I got very mad and then later I said I didn't want her to be the singer anymore because she disappeared and we wouldn't know where where she was, you know, and that was very difficult to carry on. But we played, you know, and we were just so full of energy idea. But I also thought, oh, you play one, you know, you go to play, and then they come and give you a record contract, and that's set. That seems You're the logical, be- doesn't it? Seems yes, <laughs> yes, it was very logical, you know. But and people were. We're doing, and the dolls were still, I mean, they were, it was underground. It was very underground. They didn't, but I thought, and they called us the female dolls because we were just wild. And I mean, we didn't really imitate them. We had the same person, Tashi, because these people, they were very connected. They were very ambitious. They, you know, they would go to Max's and meet and meet everybody and connect with with all these people. In fact, I there was one time I missed Led Zeppelin at 
at the garden because they all, that was another thing. Allen Ginsberg lived in this place. You know, it was a real, probably now it's a fancy condo for millions of dollars. Or something, but, you know, a real tenement. I think it's the kind of, my mother would say, your great grandparents did everything they could to get out of, you know, to get, to get away from this <laughs> area. And I didn't realize, I thought, but this is like, you know, the chain pull toilet. And I, it actually turned out to be the same block where my grandmother, I think, had lived as a child. You know, but I guess I thought this is so, this is so cool to be in a tenement. I mean, I grew up in, you know, in a much more lavish kind of place. But isn't this, isn't this great? But also being in the tenement, you didn't get hot water so often. So it would be a big deal to nobody else was there. I can take a bath. They all went off to Max's. They met Bonham or somebody and all got invited to go see Led Zeppelin. And I don't know what else. You know, I stayed home to take a bath. I I really, I missed a few things that way. You could have hung out with Bonzo and instead you had a bath. I know. That, so that I, is that is sort of like the opposite of a rock and roll story, isn't yes, it? Really? Yeah, I know. It's fabulous. Can we talk about your writing? Can we talk about because yeah. in this okay. long this long interview that we're yeah. featuring on Rock's Back Pages with rockcritics.com. You talk about the editor of Circus, the female editor of Circus at that point, coming to see Flaming Youth and mentioning to you that, you know, you might be interested in in writing for Circus. Yeah, and I knew what Circus was. You know, well, she goes, oh, I write for you. She was a serious English, you know, maybe, I don't know if she had a master's degree, but she was a serious English person, not English, American, but, you know, a student of literature, a student of literature, you know, a serious, but, and also getting a job, even in publishing women, you could come out of, you know, Harvard, whatever you were, you were going to be the receptionist. I mean, that's really where you were going to be. Women were not given, look, you couldn't even go as I was growing up as a kid. Women couldn't go, you you couldn't go to a restaurant alone. You couldn't have an apartment. I mean, yes, maybe in the bad, you know, if you were, or in Greenwich Village. But women, you could not, I mean, you had to be meeting your husband at a proper restaurant. Women, if they were going to have lunch, they had, they were special. I guess you had tea rooms you know, mm-hmm. in, in Britain where, but you Still could not. Still do. Yeah, that's, no, but you couldn't. You you didn't have a lot of autonomy. They would accuse any woman who went into, you know, you couldn't wait at the bar because you'd be a hooker. You know, some places they might have liked hookers. So it was very serious. But so anyway, but she came at this point, I wasn't very interested, you know, in that I had my own, you know, rock and roll life. And that's also why we liked rock and roll, because it was upending all of the rigid class systems, which were more rigid even in England, but it really was a a cultural revolution all around. It wasn't just something that was made up. It really really happened, and it was very exciting. And we all thought this is going to just keep moving 
forward. Things are going to keep improving. It'll be better. But anyway, it was all new. It was all exciting. I thought Bob Criscow was was just as important as Mick Jagger, you know, because it was all part of the, I did, as I later said, I am going to try and be nice. I didn't realize what assholes they both were, but no, but, but they, they've both done, but they both have their merits. They've both done good work. You know, I mean, you know, you get a different perspective. You know, but I just thought I wanted to do it all. I wanted to, you know, people who wrote, people just being, when Rolling Stone came out, when I discovered this, you know, it was all at the same time discovering the Village Voice in my, you know, the the library, the high school library that I could. And I said, look at this crazy paper that the articles jump, you know, from different places. It, it was just really funny to read it. And people could say, I, they wrote in the first person there, which they didn't do in the, in the New Yorker, maybe something, but they're not going to hire me at the New Yorker. You know, they already have people, then they didn't write about, you know, rock me, whatever. They weren't going to hire me or even to write about any books. I said, what am I going to do? I'll write. I want, I'll write about rock and roll. And I called up Kathy Stein and she said, oh, well. I'm sorry, this is, we have so many people. This is very, very, you know, this is, I was shot that it's very hard. And, you know, there are many, and actually at the time, it's interesting how many people wrote for, for circus, people like Stephen Gaines, Michael Gross, Stephen, De- a lot of people, they were all writing for this dopey crotch up, you know, look up the crotch you know, magazine. Wasn't it Circus that sent Patti Smith to interview the band? Yes. Oh, maybe she mm. did. Because she, I mean, I was more familiar with, you know, she was, that was another, you know, she was starting to write. To, but to me also, Patti Smith was this person who used to call up Allen Ginsberg all the time, you know, when she sure. was first starting her thing. She, you know, she, and also you'd, you'd pick up the phone. It could be mm. Patti Smith. It could be Yoko, you know, on the other, you know, it just would be, but she was doing, you know, it was like everybody did everything. You know, mm. you want to be in a show, you know, at La Mama. I had been in the dirtiest show in town, you know, when all of these, I, so I knew a lot of these off, off Broadway people. All of those people were kind of around, you know, maybe Debbie Harry was in a show with the, I'm sure, I, I can't remember if Patti Smith wasn't, you know, it was all, everybody cool. was just doing, oh, let's put on a funny costume. Or do, whether you did it on the stage at Max's or in the, you know, stage at La Mama, it was all, you know, like, let's just put on our show, do our thing. Let's write. Can we go back to crotch rock, hard rock and, and heavy metal? I wanted yes. to just read a lovely sentence from the rockcritics.com interview where you say, the heavy metal aspect to me was much more pulsing and alive than the whiny singer-songwriter crap that these corduroid pinstripe yeah. rock critics would <laughs> tap their Ouija's to and rhapsodize on and on about. Well, so what That's... I wanted to ask is, you know, uh, uh, yeah. it was really about hard rock metal Mm-hmm. how you became a, a kind of an unlikely, possibly you might say unlikely female 
champion and expert is the word. Yeah, expert is the word you are expert. talking about. We, 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 <laughs> no, we love it. Yes. So, so how did you carve out that niche for yourself? Because I didn't like wimpy shit. I mean, look, I like Jackson Brown wrote great <laughs> song. You know, you know, look, I listened to Peter, Paul and Mary. You know, I mean, I liked a lot. There were a lot of things. But when this mute, when somebody hits that guitar chord or you hear something like free, we don't think of free as heavy metal, but just all right now, that is the most simple mm-hmm. thing. But it's so powerful and just, you know, whether it's street fighting man or just basic stuff. I mean, the who and and in Flaming Youth, we, we just did the summertime blue because this was. It just, it, it, it just was like you know holding on to the under the wheels of an airplane and just you know just by, yeah. and and it really it just the thump you know the, the the thump one you know it just really affected me. I mean, of course, everything really starts with the blues, and I you know the blues is very primal, and 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 also I always responded to that. And, and other things, you know, I wasn't this fucked up, sexually fucked up <laughs> little weird nerd, you know, that's, I mean, I might've been intellectual, but I just, these people, they would idolize these people or even Dylan. It was all about the words. It was never about yeah. the music right. because they didn't understand that. And they had these fear about even how they would dissect the stuff it was always about the words. Now, I do love words. I love to put them together. I love language. You know, I love communicating, but I also, the music and what you were able to do just with the electric guitar, it just affected. I I wanted to be in the middle of it, you know, like have my head in the drum or in the amplifier. of these men, you know, who were writers, were very threatened by the crotch rock people. You know, they were, well, they were terrifying. They would, if you, if you had a very little, you know what, or it didn't function, you would be, you would find, of course, they wouldn't talk about it. I think you would find these kind of guys, these guys, you know, like thugs or like giant guys, they would find that very threatening. I didn't, of course, I didn't realize Although I ended up marrying someone later on who I thought was the love of my life, you know, who was a hard rock band. But I also was very clear I was not doing this to be someone's girlfriend, just being a writer. There were very few, very few of the you it was just expected you would be the girlfriend. Or they want that that's or in one case there was the sister. You know, Bob Criscow would let his sister, but they were mostly the girl. And I just was very clear. I was, that was not my interest in in that, that I was interested in music. I was interested in finding out, just getting to the core. How do they do this? Who do, and how, or how do I do this? I just wanted to understand it all. Like if you were writing, wanted to write books, how you really have to take things apart 
and and look at them. And that's also what people who do music do. You know, these guys will sit and, and practice riffs and they take them all, the, the guitar playing apart, and they, they say, well, this is how Jimmy Page did this or that, and they'll repeat it, and then they kind of flip it around and make their own song. It's very interesting. In, in, in that piece from The Village Voice, uh, White Noise, How Heavy Metal yeah. Rules, it's so great because you're, as you said somewhere else, uh, you, you're really more interested in the ride. It's fascinating because in that piece, you p- pack in so much sociological kind of... No, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's really fascinating because you, you, you're kind of taking it apart. as you, you go them personally, as well as kind of the setting up of the stage or the kind of how they tour. Um, it's, it's a brilliant actually, piece of writing. It, it, if I say so myself, and I did, no, it, it but <laughs> that took a long time. That piece, actually, it had a, re- it was a record, the longest piece that sat in Overset at the Village of Voice, because it had gone through several variations. The original editor, when I originally started writing, it, it took because you go lot, from the states also, to England, you go yeah, well, onto with different also bands. All of these ex- different experiences that I had over a period of a couple of years that I couldn't use these stories anywhere else. And then I, it wasn't until I went back and read it, I almost forgot that I did this other kind of reported, you know, real investigative journalism, which wasn't just being which rock critics do not. Robert Criscow is not a reporter. Yeah. No, I mean he came to, but they they don't do they don't do. I mean he did go. I mean he did go to interview Mick Jagger for advice on his love life or something. But uh, <laughs> he and Ellen will, you know, to get a benefit. Yes, but this is how different that, times. Yeah, and that piece is just no, but, observational in no, a kind of Didion esque way. Yeah, but it wasn't getting facts. And that may have been because at some point, somebody else who came across the piece had said, maybe go and just get some other stuff, get some interviews. But it's also interesting that the people that I talked to, like Cliff Bernstein, who I, who I knew there, when we first started this, he was somebody working at Polygram. He hadn't started managing the groups yet. But they had also begun to figure out a sort of scientific way to do it. Management and all this other stuff as a science. And which I think business school is usually bullshit too. This is what's ruined. This is what's ruined the world is these, you know, corporate (laughs) cookie cutter things. But they have done brilliantly in managing you know, that piece is so interesting acts. because because you know you start off saying you're quoting Lester Bang saying it's now 1976 yeah, and heavy well, metal I... seems already to belong to history, and you fast forward nine years and what you're saying is it's bigger than ever, yeah, and yeah. it's it's never going to go away, and yeah. yes, it's become more in a sense formulaic, more yeah. more corporate, but. There's so many interesting quotes in there, but we haven't even mentioned Motley Crue, Deborah, which is we no. just need to just briefly <laughs> briefly mention because they're about to start a tour next week, so this is quite timely to be talking oh, about the real Mot- or Motley Two. Mo- I, I mean, like I have I no idea. <laughs> I have no idea, and even less interest. But I am aware that the crew, the mighty crew, are hitting the road next week. So it wow. seemed it seemed quite timely to run this piece. It's like I call. Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, we call them Two Oyster Cult. 
Yeah. <laughs> They've yes. been too oyster cold for a while. Yes. No, Motley Crue, but when they came out and also just the images were very vibrant. And how I even ended up doing that was I went, you know, and I knew, I knew Kiss when they were painting the names on the T-shirts. I mean, I met Gene Simmons in the ladies' room of the Electric Circus, I always <laughs> say. You know, really, it was pretty. But, you know, he, at that time, he seemed intelligent for a rock. Listen, <laughs> that, they put, that they put that makeup on, if you saw them, was the most brilliant thing that anybody could have done because they were not, not attractive. Pretty. No. And then they, on the giant platform shoes, which I think they deserve a special medal just for not falling off them and killing themselves. I mean, that <laughs> really is worthy of an award because even in flaming, you know, we used to wear the, this stuff. That is hard. If you can walk, it's yeah. like walking around. So, so that, you know, when they learn to dance, but anyway, but Motley Crue, they did have an intensity and a light, just looking at them just as they came out as an image. And the videos were very, you know, that's people who had a sense of like Twisted Sister was great, you know, where ZZ Time, you know, where these people, the, the video medium was, was made for them. They didn't even have to be good. You, I mean, if you heard the original Motley Crue track, I mean, they were really terrible. They were real. It was unbearable. To, I mean, when I was sitting in the mountain, you know, having to listen to this crap come out of speaker, I mean, it was so, it was so bad. But Motley Crue, they, they were very secretive and you couldn't get the picture. You couldn't, I, and then I realized why they were so secretive because they were total <laughs> idiots that, you know, they really had to protect or make it seem like they were some had this great image, but they were coming along and they were why, you know, seemed like they were the next real deal. You know, I ended up going, they were just ridiculous. <laughs> One of the things that I you like know, about, about all forms of like heavy, heavy rock, whether it's metal or, or hard rock is the campness that, yeah. that, that well, I the, true sort of Susan Sontag campness yeah. of that like that it's that it's so over the top but so sincere that it's they got this dual <laughs> thing of like both being amusing and funny if you don't take it seriously but it takes itself seriously but that's what makes it yeah not serious yeah, in a funny well, sort of circular well, way it really is it's professional wrestling but it's yes. yeah. much more serious. With it's, amplified. It's, it's professional, professional wrestling, wrestling but it's real. But it's <laughs> yeah, real. Exactly. You know, but it's the circus i mean and i think that that's something that you you know even the stones it's the circus you join the circus it's show business and the more you spend in time you, you just it's the circus it's a good moment to talk about a band that wasn't totally buffoonish and a band that to me is still, I've waited four years for an opportunity to talk about the Blue Oyster Cult <laughs> on the Rocks Back Pages podcast. And Martin may have been waiting as long as that as well, because we're both sort of, we're both serious, like closet cult fans. <laughs> yeah. so, the closet cult cult. Yeah, just going to ask, you see, Martin and I, we, we love a lot of very like, yeah 
you know, just like soul music and, and Americana. And, and then we discovered years ago that we, we had this kind of secret <laughs> passion for, for the Blue Oyster yeah. Cult. So I'm going to ask my you friend. Are Martin, not alone. You I'm are gonna, not so alone. Martin, you Martin, are not tell, alone. Tell me where, how. I, Martin, Martin sent me two pictures yesterday from the Hammersmith Odeon, 1976, yeah. right? Or, or was it eight? <laughs> 78, probably. So he took shots of them all five of them with the guitars, guitars on stage yeah i'll send those was what was it that made the cult like you know different from black sabbath better than fucking judas priest why do we love them because if you didn't like black sabbath and judas priest but you kind of did like some elements of it they had the imprimatur of a rock critic, but also they were kind, yeah. you sensed they were smart. And I think that there was an era around that point of like 10 CC or one band. They were the 10 CC and, of metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, playing with, genre, playing with genre, Dan, really, but... isn't it? It's a, and Steely Dan. So, so yeah. I think if you didn't really respond to Black Sabbath or Deep Purple and you found them slightly ridiculous, here was a band playing somewhat in that style that you could love and you could you know, I mean because they were when I saw them at Hammersmith they were supported by Motorhead on their first yes. tour no they were they were very legitimate then no it was <laughs> no it was no they really but they were. had that so like, they did have a kind of it was a different kind of camp theatricality from yeah, hair, what became hair metal or any of those things you know there was a giant gong on the stage the drummer played with mallets <laughs> and then at the end everyone's playing a guitar and I can't even remember what that sounded like, but I don't know who was holding the rhythm down, but there's, they're all playing guitar. <laughs> Albert, Albert, probably. <laughs> Albert, no, it was, it was really, but they also developed that stage act, the hard, the long old fashioned way. It's right. by just like the Stones and, you know, I mean, I can say yeah, whatever, you, you know, mm -hmm. with the crew of, but these people, how they became, or even the Beatles, how the Beatles became a great band. It was those, those nights, those, those yeah. sets, the, the lunchtime thing in Hamburg, yeah. you know, you just do it, do it, do it, do it. Yeah. I mean, there are people who do it, do it, do it. And are, you know, are dreary. Never. No, but you had to go out. You, you are competing. You're trying to blow the, the other people off the stage, but just to be, it, it's like if you were in a race, if you're going to still be in that race, you, you'd better learn how to run. If you're going to play at Wimbledon or whatever, you know, you, you're going to have, you have to out. compete. You can't go in the Grand Slam without having done those work. tennis shots all hour. your life. Yeah, yeah. Deborah, we're going to listen to the first of a few clips. They're very short clips of these old acquaintances of yours. From 1978, there's going to be two clips of Alan Lanier speaking to Ian Ravendale, and then we're going to hear one, and then much later, two clips of Eric Bloom. So the first clip, which is Alan Lanier talking about the various names that the cult did or didn't have before they became the boys to cult. <laughs> Okay. The band only performed under three names: Soft White Underbelly, Stoke Forest, and Blue Oyster Cult. Mm. Because and they were different personnel every time. Yeah, because the the idea behind the Stoke Forest group, apparently, so I read, was that 
there were supposedly two dead members of the band called Stork and Forest. Nudge, nudge, wink, nudge, wink. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, yeah. Give me a break. It's all false information. You've been reading too much Richard Meltzer. <laughs> so all Richard is, is great at nothing else. He's great at lying. <laughs> all this is complete fabrication. It's called being creative. Yeah. So is this. <laughs> because apparently... Because apparently we had a sense of humor. I mean, yes. Yeah. Right, so look, there we go. The, the sense of humor. But here's the bigger thing that I'm always fascinated by and reading up various things about the Bloister cult in anticipation of this episode and talking with you. This whole thing around rock critics. I mean, your Q&A, you talk about, well, I think Bruce Springsteen was more of a rock critics band than the Bloister cult. And I hadn't heard anyone say that before, and I get that. But the fact of the matter is that Sandy Perlman and Richard Meltzer, who both wrote for the very first rock and roll publication of, of any discerning note, Crawdaddy. They both wrote for Crawdaddy. They had so much to do with the cult, especially the lyrics. They both wrote these insane, yeah. mystical, sci-fi, gonzo lyrics that the band then set to music. And and in a way, that's what Martin's referring to. It really set them yeah. aside. I mean, half the time, you don't know what the hell they're talking about. No. But, no. You, but it isn't and, Black Sabbath. No, it's <laughs> no, it, no, no it, and it's still true. It was, look, the fact that anybody could set this stuff to music. <laughs> I, 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 that's the right trick. You know, Albert, yeah. when he, and when he brought Imagino, you know, which he yes. said was, was supposed to be his solo record. And when we had first met, and we actually met through... Well, it, not so much through rock and roll. It was more running. You know, that's a whole other story. I won't digress. It, just tell me to shut up and then get the scissors <laughs> and edit. You know, I'm sorry. You know, it's like it's decades of stuff to go through. And sure. this would be better done in a proper pub with the with the proper <laughs> mug, you yes. know, with a proper mug, a proper pint, which I hear is going up. In stagflation. Yes, I'm completely okay. unaffordable no, now. Anyway, <laughs> we're like long lost relatives meeting. But yes, these things that just the fact that I thought, how can you, why would you even, how can you even think about putting music to these the words that don't scan? How they did, you know, these these ridiculous things. And lyrics by Patti Smith, of course. I mean, well, I've forgotten totally. I don't know about you, Martin, but I would like to she... check the credits on Secret Treaties, which yes. to me is their greatest album. No, I mean, it's that, just... And I but but it... Patti Smith wrote the lyric for Career of Evil. I Career of Evil. Yeah. And they are brilliant. I think brilliant they... Brilliant lyrics. Of, some oh, my of, God. Some of her greatest... Yeah her greatest words. <laughs> Some of her but, greatest lyrics. And Revenge of Vera Gemini as well. Oh, I mean, which what an incredible is, lyric No, which is. No, which is... She should have stuck to heavy metal. I've always said yeah, <laughs> But I think she was trying to be, you know, in, in the mix. She and, and Sandy Perlman were, were good friends. And I think that's how... Because she, she sort of ended up... And, you know... Just in these, say, you know, thinking of things, because I was thinking, yes, and she lived, she was Alan Lanier's girlfriend. girlfriend. Yep. Yeah, but then I thought, yeah, it was very convenient. She she had a Fifth Avenue apartment and a maid. She didn't have to pay for, it, you know. No, but believe me, it was it it 
it, that was quite a way up from from the Chelsea Hotel where sure. they had to go to other people to take a bath. And they wanted Patti Smith to be the singer for what and frankly they would have been better off. But uh because well, the person who was the front man didn't sing the hit. And that was the but the other thing is that there was this great mystery about them because you didn't see the bit, you didn't see the picture, the, the, you didn't know who they were. So they seemed very mysterious. And the lyrics and all of the other things were the result of collaboration. But it that also just to get the songs on. I mean, they went through there was a lot of competition to get your songs on them mm-hmm. and to yeah, write. Because Meltzer and would, would just would like send in like ten yeah, tons. lyrics, and, 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 you and know, I just had, tons I, of crazy, insane. I mean, he wrote no, the lyrics I, to Harvester I, of Eyes, for example. Yeah, which which <laughs> Metallica, <laughs> which Metallica kind of used as a thing. Yes. They said, you know, we use Harvester of Eyes, but you know, they would turn things around. But which actually was about. Harvester of Eyes, right? It really was about a Supreme Court justice who had a retina, pro, retinal cancer or something. I don't know. He'd get drunk and I'm the Eye Man of TV with yeah. my ocular TB. Yeah. I need all the peepers I can find. It's, it's, <laughs> no, outrageous. it's bonkers. Outrageous. No, it, no, they are. And I have, I have a lot of. There were a lot of other ones. I have stacks <laughs> No, but but in brain surgeons when 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 I. Which is the band you just for anyone who doesn't know is the band that you formed with Albert Bouchard after sometime after he left the cult. Sometime after Blue Oyster Cult. And we did, but also Albert had all of these things that had either been not that they've been rejected, but he would also write a lot of stuff. He yes. wrote, he was very, very prolific. He was very driven. You know, music, they were just, you get, that was, their thing. They were very driven to get songs on the albums. And, you know, Meltzer would just, I, or maybe he was doing speed or something, stay up all night. I don't know what Quite he was possibly. doing. I don't know what they were doing, but, you know, he would write this crap. And, but <laughs> they managed to put these things to Let's Can we, let's listen to yeah. a second clip okay. from Alan Lania. So this okay. is him essentially defending heavy metal to, to yeah. the hilt. But I think heavy metal is certainly a cliche, and you're one of the I few. disagree entirely. Well, I, I find heavy metal, you know, one of the least cliche-ridden forms there is. Well, may I don't know, maybe now it is, but hmm. I mean, as 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 a, I mean, I couldn't think of anything. Even though they're not one of my favorite groups, I found you know the approach of bands like Deep Purple. Yep. You know, I found their approach to things like you know almost unsettling sometimes hmm. because it, you know they they. And people would say to me that, now that's heavy metal, and you know, and, and I would say, wow, it sure is strange. Yeah, far enough. I mean, Deep Purple were 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 certainly a cut above. Black Sabbath in yeah. terms of virtuosity and so forth. Yeah. Martin, what, can you remember that gig at Hammersmith? And was it any good? 
I remember, well, two things I remember. One was the uh, was Larry Wallace of Motorhead trying to tune up with a fuzz box on. Yes. No, I, I, I seem to remember they were thrilling. They had, you know, it, it was a, they had logos, you know, there was a big yeah. kind of, it wasn't a video screen projected too early for that, but, but they had a set, you know, which seemed a, yeah. a thing, you know. Wow. Yeah, I think they were very yeah. impressive. Were they very, very loud? I, they were loud. Motorhead were really loud too. And I guess following Motorhead, you would make sure you didn't come in at a quieter volume. No, no, I, I, remember, I have very fond memories of that, of that gig. That was the only time I ever saw them. Albert would always say that Lemmy got the idea for the speed metal from the red and the black or something. But right. I don't know. You know, they all influenced yeah. one another. And if it was, ha- you know, it was a creative time and there were things... You know, and Alan was an Alan Lanier was an interest. I mean, Alan always seemed to be the cool guy. Right. And he was the one, the one who was like the sexy, cool guy. And one of the problems with Blue Oyster, you know, they started so they had they had the soft white and you know, then they more I'm getting at it. Apparently Donald had call, called up Albert, you know, and, and said, I met this guy, you know, and, oh, he was not a, the rock critic, but he was the head of the Stony Brook putting on the events, doing the events committee stuff at the college, but he's going to make, of course. So if you were the person doing the events committee on a college campus, you book the bands, you gave them work, you know, you gave them to, and he's going to get us gigs and then he's going to make us start, you know, and, and Donald, Donald really a very prodigious music, musician. I mean, his father was a musician. He's somebody, he just had incredible talent, you know. And the way that he played, you know, it was a virtuoso style. When there were, yeah, you had like a Clapton, you had, you know, the English virtuoso. But he really was a one very... Of, one of the great guitar, one of the most yeah. underrated guitar players. Yeah, he, I think, Martin, he, would you agree? Buck, Buck Dharma? Are you, is he not a favorite of yours? I think he's astonishing. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I well, need to listen back to the records. I kind of, yeah. yeah. Maybe you overlooked his genius. Yeah, yeah. There's still time. Yeah. There's still time. To <laughs> yeah. You can redeem yourself <laughs> for the cult. Let's move the cult story forward a little because we got a clip of Eric Bloom talking about, well, you get to this album, Agents of Fortune, which is a much more polished thing. I don't think the songs back to front are as strong as secret treaties but the first side is pretty damn great starting with this ain't the summer of love and of course they have this giant hit single with the song that eric bloom in the third clip for this episode is about to tell us about reaper was a big hit a lot of people said, oh, listen now, la, 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 gee, what happens to she's as beautiful as a foot? What happened with, with these guys went wrong somewhere. I mean, um, I think the guys in the, the, the press, especially rock critics, try to slag you when you start doing well, when you're not uh, an underground power anymore. You know, when all of a sudden, oh, they have a hit, let's forget them, you know, uh, which is especially, the, I think the English press is, is the premier version of that, you know, first... When you're when you're totally unsuccessful, they say these guys are happening. These guys are great, you know. The new doors, you know, and then you get a hit, and they say, well, saw so them, you know, they used to be great, now they have a hit. You know. Come on, baby. 
I love it's the supreme irony that this band that came out of rock critics <laughs> is now slagging <laughs> off in the usual <laughs> way. The British rock press, yeah, build them up and yeah, you yeah, knock them yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the Brits. I mean, okay, so don't fear the Reaper, huge, huge hit. It got to number 12 in America, but it was also completely atypical. And yes. by this point, they had also realized, you know, that in order to break, you're getting a lot of pressure. I mean, the record company, and it's a business, you're getting a lot of pressure to, other bands are having hits, you know, that you needed a hit. And Donald came up with this thing, but it, what, that was so, it, it still is, it's a great riff. And actually Sting, and I, he admitted to me himself, you know, he kind of flipped it around and used it as message in a bottle, but it really, and it's really such a simple thing from this A minor to G. And you really can't believe that it's such a simple thing. And then the break, the break really is, is pretty brilliant, you know, but it's very carefully constructed, but they had the hit and Donald wrote it and he wrote it himself and it doesn't have anybody else's name on it. And that's, I think where a lot of other trouble started, which happens is not unusual. going to have to stop talking about the Blue Oyster Cult Well, with it, much as it pains me because I'm sure we could talk all day and all night <laughs> about the Blue Oyster Cult but we're going to move on to a very, well, a pretty different kind of artist tomorrow night, Grace Jones is opening the Meltdown Festival here in London which she is also curating and um, she's doing a kind of orchestral set I believe at the Royal Festival Hall tomorrow. This is the first meltdown in a while, thanks to COVID. But she's got Peaches, she's got Angelique Kijo, she's got Umu Sangare. She's do- there's a tribute to Barry White, who I know that Grace is a, was was a huge fan of, um, and it all looks very diverse and transgressive and multidisciplinary and what you'd expect yeah, of this. It's a fat, like really interesting mix of like soul and jazz and then like contemporary music by a composer who works with AI to generate music on the. It's like yes, it's, it's, it's going it's to be it's very an Grace event. Jones. It's it very will cool. be an event. Yeah. Now, all I can say about Grace Jones. Grace Jones and her little son got naked with me. Hold it right yeah. there. Hold it right there. Just stop, hold the front page. Back up <laughs> while I take a deep breath. All right. Okay. Now tell the story. Yeah. Well, talking about going, it's New York. In the, I went to, you know, because I got very into body. And that's actually Albert and I, you know, I was trying to make up for my rock and roll excess. And that's how, uh, you know, I ran, was running, doing marathon. And I got in, actually, how I got into bodybuilding. It's a long story. So anyway, I got into bodybuilding and there were very few gyms at the time. And I it was a special place, little bodybuilding gym, very tiny, you know, only two people. And Grace Jones used to come there. And the locker room was as big as, you know, like a normal bath. It was a very tiny, small place. And Dolph Lundgren would come. You could only have like two or three people, clients there. I think Albert and I did, we did a soundtrack for some video or commercial they made. So they let us in. for, But anyway, so Grace Jones 
you know, go in and, and it's not only Graystra getting naked, but the kid and, you know, I mean, she was perfectly nice. But, and so was Dolph Lundgren, you know. Dolph Lundgren, you know. It's a name we haven't heard for a while. You know, she was, she was perfectly nice. And, you know, she is a riot. She's a riot. You know, she's had the best writers, you know, great producers. Pull up to the bumper. You know, what's yeah, not to love about that? Well, so yeah, I, sorry, so I'm sure. Record. Okay, so I'll let you people talk about the event that's coming to your shores. Well, I, 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 before, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to part mm-hmm. of the reason for doing this is not just mm-hmm. Meltdown, but also that Chris Blackwell's autobiography is coming yeah. out this week as well. Oh. So it seemed, I felt, Martin and Jasper, a good moment to celebrate, you know, the, in a sense, the kind of reinvention of Grace Jones. You know, she was she was on island in her kind of disco phase, but then... Blackwell packed her off to Compass Point with with Sly and mm. Robbie, and we got this completely new Grace Jones, this very edgy, like modern artist. Mm. Can you remember when you when Martin when you first discovered Grace when you first heard her? Not really. I mean, I I think we all loved that record that was done at Compass Point. That with Alex Sadkin. With the great, Al- the great, yeah. the late. No, great it Alex was bri- it was brilliant. No, was it was brilliant. It was a great, record. and it stands the test of time. And, you know, and she wasn't just a model or an actress. To, I mean, just a she had a persona, but it wasn't just about a persona. And she's and she's kept reinventing. Yeah, herself. yeah, I mean, and she's, she's constantly surprising. She, I mean, I saw her at the Hal Wilner Disney meltdown of the Albert Hall. Where she did the, the did the song that the snake does in the Jungle Book, uh, okay. "Believe in Me." Yes. <laughs> While a wind, yes. she was standing on a platform, and there was a wind machine blowing this giant hat around. Wow! I mean, it was like spectacular. No, I would, look, I would rather see that. Yes, was. I I I would rather see that than Beyonce. You know, coming out with her thing. I mean, Grace Jones is a more interesting artist. A real character, I think. We kind of touched on it, but the multidisciplinary aspect of her talents as like being a great musician, but Uh, also fashion-wise and, you know, being in... I mean, not not that she's had a sort of long and illustrious acting career, but the things that she has done, you know, her and James Bond, for example, is just very, very her, nevertheless. I think she's it's, it's more big. She's more Bowie than Bowie. That's in interesting. I respects. hadn't really even... Yeah. In, in yeah. the performance aspect, you There's know. There's a, a, a the record she made. Aspect. She hadn't made anything for a while, I think, and then she made a fantastic record, which was quite a personal record, which... I can't remember the name of the album, but it has a song called William's Blood on it. Yeah, William's Blood is extraordinary. Which is an extraordinarily great record. The whole record is fantastically played and made. That's really worth it. Yeah, hurricane, maybe? Hurricane, yeah, like might be hurricane. We're, we're running three pieces to celebrate Grace. And one is, an, is a pretty early interview from 1977 that Robin Katz did when she's still, you know, in kind of full on Studio 54 mode. But uh, there's a great quote, which I feel M- Mark might have actually read out on the podcast before, but I still love it. I've been told that I sound like a disco Nico. <laughs> but I wonder what kind of drugs people do take to my music. And this is when the version of La Vie en Rose has just come out, which I absolutely adore. But it's that's pre-warm leatherette, pre-nightclubbing. Yes. Pre, yeah, I mean, pull up to the bumper, the apple stretching, my Jamaican guy. That yeah. sound they got 
on those records, I think. I mean, is the phenomenal. cover that they did of Use Me. Use Me, on, yes. On nightclubbing. It's the sounds of it. Like, just the way that they kind of sort of pair it back, but then add all these really funky little <clears> touches <throat> and keyboard stuff. <clears throat> and it's it's just, it's so, it grooves so hard. It's just, I love it. Well, there's a great quote from, so the third piece, John McCready in The Word in 2008, reviewing a compilation of Compass Point recordings called Funky Nassau. He describes this mixture of the supple, smoky cool of reggae and the snooty sheen of high-end <laughs> disco. Um, the spaciness of dub combining with a coldly clinical, newly emerging electro, which I think gets it uh, yeah. really, yeah, really it's well. Fun. It's such a unique sound. And and in a way, we never really heard it again. That might have had something to do with the with the untimely death of Alex Sadkin, who who I think had quite a lot to do with. But obviously, Sly and Robbie, Wally, Badaru, Barry Reynolds. Mm-hmm. This is just an extraordinary group of of people making mm-hmm. these records. You listen to the, the like just the the choices, the percussion choices, the brilliant little sounds that you hear all through those records. I absolutely love them, and the fact they did. That Joy Division song, you know, She's Lost Control, I mean, mm. was sort of, was really bold, wasn't it? I don't know, if, I, I haven't read the Blackwell book. Paul Morley sort of ghosted that with Chris Blackwell, but it's... Interesting. Blackwell, Blackwell is in, in the news now. I mean, it's his sort of last hurrah, isn't it? It's called The Islander. I hope that's all I know about it at the moment. But anyway, Grace Jones, Meltdown, starting tomorrow night. From there, we're well, going. By the time this episode comes out, oh, it will have happened. Sorry, so, let so. me take that again. <laughs> yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Thank you, Jasper. Thank you for pointing right. out the temporal dislocations. <laughs> we are now going to briefly talk about about something slightly more kind of you know contemporary, and that is a band called Foles, a British band called Foles. So it's a kind of bonus audio. I'm going to hand over to Jasper at this point because they come from his town. So over to you, Jasper. <laughs> My town. Yes. Oxford. Your kind of and town. Foles. So we're adding this. This is going to be next week's audio. So this it's already on the site, but it's going to be featured next week because Foles have their latest album coming out on Friday next week, the Friday, the whatever it is, 17th, I believe. So this is an audio from 2015 when not their most recent album, but the one before that, although the most recent one was a two-parter. Anyway, the album that they're talking about, the front guy for Foles, Yanis, is talking about what went down. And it's an interview that Pip Williams did. And they're kind of just talking, it starts as a kind of fairly standard, like how was it making the album? How did it compare to the previous album? What is it like writing in Oxford and when they recorded it in Provence and and stuff like that. But what's quite interesting, and we're going to listen to two clips. And the first one is he talks about, because this album, What Went Down, was produced by James Ford, whereas the previous one, Holy Fire, had been produced by Flood and Mulder. So he's talking about the difference between those two. I see a mountain on my gaze I see it more and more each day I mean, just generally, he would always try and, like, push us a little bit further than we we thought we could go. Mm-hmm. And that's for everybody, I think, with the drum takes and, and with everything. He was, like, very, very focused. The other thing that he really emphasised was decision-making. Like, we're quite bad at making decisions and yeah. we like to put things off and we like to romanticise 
looseness and like chaos mm-hmm. and being and leaving it up to chance. Yeah. And he was definitely somebody that was like, you know, that's great, but but, but like. <laughs> Let's let's make some decisions, and that was yeah. like one big thing. Whereas with Flood and Mulder on the last record, we definitely got, we were allowed to indulge all of that mm-hmm. type of stuff, like being like, oh, like, like you know, let's try this, let's try that. Instead, James would be like, no, let's just make a decision. What I like about that is that. It does come through on the record where, and he talks later on in the interview about how they wanted to write more songs because they love playing live. And one of my favorite things about them is that they're such a good live band. And he talks about wanting to write more songs that were really kind of energetic and loud and big live. And I think that probably the influence of James Ford is important for creating those, those kinds of songs because it does have that kind of driven nature to it. The second clip is quite a funny one where they're talking about the title track, What Went Down, and the video for that track, which is quite a kind of, I suppose, visceral sort of animalistic video. And so they're talking about that and about which animal the new album is most like. You know, the song, like, feels, like, predatory mm-hmm. in the sense that, like, you know when you watch, like, a, an Attenborough or something or, like, a yeah. wildlife program you've got an animal and it's, like, like a lion and it's tensed and mm-hmm. it's watching its prey and the moment it charges in to, to chase its prey, that song, the song feels like that moment. And so we, me and the director talked about that. So he just wanted yeah. the, the, the video to emphasise that element of, like, attack and the pursuit mm-hmm. you know and like and something that's kind of violent and yeah visceral. sure so if the album was an animal it would definitely be one of those predatory kind of things or does the album as a whole i think the album as a whole so? is, yeah less so i think the album as a whole is like something that's more multicolored and can shape shift or change so it'd be like an octopus or like a <laughs> cuttlefish or something <laughs> a cuttlefish yeah. or a chameleon or something yeah So, what went down? A cuttlefish. <laughs> you heard it here first. But, you know, I, I, it's actually a really nice interview. And one element that I enjoy is that it was Pip's first time interviewing someone, yes. having done only not that much music journalism before that. And they mentioned it during the interview. And Yanis is, like, terribly nice about it, despite having quite a prickly reputation. You know, in previously he's been described as tremendously rude, faintly patronizing and amusingly self-centered. <laughs> but he actually, you know, he comes across really well and he's he clearly thinks quite a lot about what he's doing and, you know, reads a lot. And so it's a nice interview to listen to. I was wanting to ask you, Barney, because I know that you've listened to them a, a reasonable amount and, and like them enough, but I was kind of wondering whether you feel like they're interesting and different or just another guitar band. No, I don't think they are just another guitar band. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of absolutely au fait with all, all their albums, but you know, the sort of very well-known songs like My Number, I think, are are really great, really dynamic and fun, and just huge amounts of energy and dynamics there. So I, I, I kind of get that. I've also read 
interviews with Yanis that are you know slightly deeper and more philosophical than than those clips might suggest. <laughs> suggest. I mean, he's clearly yes. a really bright guy. I mean, I don't know if he was yeah. a philosophy graduate or something. So he's got interesting things to say about music and about culture and about the world we're we're living in. So I mean. He's someone that I keep an, an eye open for and an ear open for. I think he's I think he's really interesting. And I know, I mean, you're not like big on guitar rock. So the fact that you really like and enjoy them, have seen them a number of times, I know that, that clearly they've got something because, you, yes, I say, you probably dismiss 90% of guitar <laughs> bands. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I definitely went through a phase of liking guitar bands as, as a team. But like, no, I mean, I do still really like them and I think I like them because they've managed to shapeshift to reuse that word. They've they've kind of changed their sound a bunch of times and yeah. they've still remained quite true to I mean maybe he has quite a unique voice so maybe that helps with generating a sense of continuity but I do find them to be really an interesting band and I've said this before on the podcast but they're one of my favorite live bands ever. I mean live they are absolutely electrifyingly good. They're just fantastic and i think you're right that they are all bright guys as well i mean a couple of them have left the band and one of them who left last year edwin congreve is he left to do a degree in postgraduate economics at cambridge <laughs> and hopes to join in technical efforts to mitigate the imminent climate catastrophe so i you know i, I kind of rate that as like all right i've done this music thing for a bit i feel driven to do something else now but no i i find them groovy i find them funky i find them clever and i and, and i think that's what what sets them apart for me so they're quite like motley crew really is what yeah. saying. <laughs> except if they're from oxford do they know inspector morse <laughs> he's my favorite he's my americans favorite. love inspector i love, morse, yes. I love I, him yeah. i just listen the pandemic allowed me to be i I discovered this things like the liar, the soprano, but Inspector Morris. Then I had to go to Cavanaugh QC. I've watched them all. I've watched them all. I've got between Trump and the pandemic, I'm very heavily into British detectives. Yeah. Can imagine that in the you know, Morse was was a sort of antidote to Trump in some respects, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, that's lovely to hear. Jasper, are you going to tell us about any pieces that you've had? We are well yeah. over time, but... Well, just a few things to mention, kind of filling the Mark Pringle seat. Yes. I'll mention a couple of things that he's added and then move on to a couple of things that I've added. And the first of Mark's pieces is a tribute to Billie Holiday from 1959, uh, Max Jones and Melody Maker, which is just a great thing to have. Mm-hmm. And it's quite short, but it's, it's very nice. Billie's death wasn't unexpected but it was no less a shock for that. She'd been ill for a long time and was clearly in poor shape when she visited this country last February. When she appeared at Lester Young's funeral, a friend told me she was looking incredibly beat. Billy didn't depend on power or forceful swing for her effectiveness, but on subtle variations of beat and melody and a completely individual approach to the words of the song. Her voice was never large, but it was one of the unique sounds in jazz. And from the start of her recording career to the end, she was original, instantly recognizable and always artistically honest. And I think that's just is spot on. And, 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 you know, Billie Holiday, absolutely wonderful, wonderful singer. So it's just nice to have that in the library. And Max really knew her. I mean, knew her really yeah. as a friend, I think. So whenever, yeah. I mean, that, that I'm correct in saying that, aren't I, Martin? I, yeah. I don't know how many times Billie came to London. Not many, but she would always as many jazz legends did, would always look up Max. Totally. Autumn in New York Where 
Does it seem so inviting? Moving very swiftly on, 40 years further, is Calvin Bush talking to Goldie in Music magazine in February 1998. And it's just a, it's a long interview and it's really interesting. And it's, and it's Calvin Bush gets, gets all these takes from Goldie on various things. One of them is Goldie talks about needing loneliness. And Calvin Bush asks, is that because you're not seeing Björk? Do you miss not having her around? And Goldie says, Nah, not at all. It was intense because she's a wonderful woman, but there was a car crash waiting to happen. And I said to her, you need to get out of this car because this car crash is my own. (laughs) It's like this was the road of fate that I was traveling on. You can die or you can be creative. But remember, there's going to be a price to pay. I thought I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to take this thing on. So I've got to move everyone out of the car and bring it to a standstill. My Saturn's return, my car crash began 18 months ago. I only brought the car to a standstill eight weeks ago. And it's just, it's super. Now you've been through all that inner turmoil. Hasn't it left you drained? No way. The opposite. You get out of the car and you go, fuck, shit, whoa, everybody okay? We made it, man. I've never had so much energy to do anything I want. I, it's, it's, it's great. It's really well worth a read. So yeah, check that one out. Goldie in Music Magazine. Nice. Next up, to kind of go back to the sort of disco sounds, is a wonderful piece, Michael a. Gonzalez in Cuepoint magazine on the 8th of October 2014, writing about Disco Inferno 79, remembering going to Adele's disco in Baltimore for the first time. And it's just a lovely kind of memoir that he writes. It was within the soundproofed walls of Adele's that I lost my disco virginity on July 12th, 1979, back in its golden days. Ironically, that was the same explosive night when, thousands of miles away in Chicago, one man was leading an asinine army in an attempt to destroy disco culture as you knew it, which was the disco demolition night at Comiskey Park in Chicago. And he just kind of traces these two nights, him going to Adele's for the first time with his friend and this other thing that he's kind of reporting on with the benefit of hindsight. And it's just lovely. It's a really fascinating and beautiful, heartwarming piece. And it ends as him finally getting, he, he doesn't, he's not a dancer. He doesn't like dancing, but his friend convinces him to, to dance. Just follow my lead. Grabbing my right hand, we pushed through the packed room until reaching the middle of the floor. Nervously, I tried not to laugh. Staring at her pretty face through the smoke, I threw my skinny arms in the air and moved awkwardly. In the spirit of Adele's motto, if only for a few minutes, I too belonged. Which is just, it's just so nice. It's a lovely thing to read. Well, that's cue for me to say I watched the first two episodes of David Simon's We Own This City last night, which were stupendous. So anyone who loved The Wire and wants to go back to Baltimore with David Simon and some of the actors from The Wire, like Marlo, the guy who played Marlo is in it, you're going to love We Own This City. Martin, have you seen any of it yet? No, no. It's, but I, well, I'm glad I, it, to hear that it's good. Did you see, are you a fan of The, of the Wire, Deborah, and have you seen oh, the new series? Oh, I love The Wire. Yeah. And I actually got to work with David Simon on Ooh. some of the stuff, Deuce, and he's really... He, now, he's somebody who started, was a newspaper writer and has done, I mean, he never stops. He's just mm-hmm. like pouring out the stuff. But I, I think he's a great writer, just a yeah. brilliant writer. 
brilliant. Yeah. Well, this was really something else, I have to say. So I'm uh, I'm going to go home and watch episode yeah. three after this. Um, I think we've come to the end of this New York marathon of, of an episode. <laughs> I hope <laughs> no, I didn't ruin fine. your whole program. <laughs> Not at all. It's been fantastic having you on the show. It yeah, is, really great. It's been an absolute That's joy, amazing. Deborah. Thank you so much for joining us. I really loved it. I love what you're doing. I wish we could all go down the pub. Prop, like, <laughs> yes. like proper people. Maybe, maybe Morse will I, be there. Yes, maybe yes. he will. We'll, buy, we'll, we'll, we'll get a cup for him. Yeah, exactly. Give him a, a whiskey. You're not the first American no. I know who's yeah. found comfort and solace, solace in, in, yeah. in rather quaint British detectives. Yeah. Yes. Where nothing, right. where nothing terribly violent happens. Yeah. That's, that's, well, I, I like the French ones too. I'm getting yes. into, you know, I'm, I'm the Swedish. Anyway, that's another discussion. <laughs> I can write my PhD thesis on on Okay. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of the episode. We're going to go out with a final clip, which is Eric Bloom talking to John Tober in 1978 about the mighty Godzilla and the lengths they had to go to obtain the rights to even sing that word. So on that note, (laughs) I want to thank our guest, Deborah Frost, for joining us today. Thanks, Deborah. Wonderfully entertaining guest. Thank you all for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton talking about many things, but the the reissued version of their last night at DJ Saved My Life. So thanks and goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye-bye. We had uh, an interesting hassle with recording the song Godzilla and the obtaining the musical rights to say Godzilla. We went through round and round with attorneys and we wound up paying a lot of money um, and, and percentage of the album and everything to be able to say, oh no, there goes Godzilla. You know? Someone in, in, in uh, some musical company in the United States owns the right to, the, to any musical version of Godzilla. And uh, they they will make more money on the song Godzilla than the guy who wrote it. It's like saying Mickey Mouse, I suppose. It's the Walt it's Disney like saying Chevrolet, you know? Oh no, Chevrolet! Oh, pay me. <laughs> That was Eric Bloom in conversation with John Tobler in 1978, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Deborah Frost. Find out more about her and her writing on her RBP Writers page. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. History shows-